0: Um, as you all know, one of the most uh, influential journalists of Mexico, Carmen Aristegui, was sacked last month under allegations of uh, loss of confidence uh, between the media company that she was working for, which is MRS Noticias, and her team. Um, particularly, two members of her team were sacked because uh, Carmen Aristegui was signing an agreement with Mexico Leaks. The most recent platform for trying to uh, leak, uh, uh, like to cover and disseminate the leaks from the Mexican government. Um, after that, uh, well, uh, we, there is a legal case, and four months earlier, this same team published what would become a massive scandal for the administration of President Peña Nieto the acquisition of a four million uh, pounds mansion. Uh, through one of the government's contractors. So, of course, this has some implications and we would like to address them. What are the implications for the freedom of expression in Mexico? And what is the role of media and its relation to political power in our country? So, for that, we have uh, José Antonio Brambilla and Doctor Ella McPherson uh, that are coming to, to give us their point of view. Uh, we're going to start with José Antonio. Uh, José Antonio uh, he holds uh, a bachelor's in communication from the Pan American University in Mexico City, uh, and he is a master in political science from the Colegio de México. His doctoral research is on the interaction between the media systems and the political systems from a comparative perspective. So uh, we're going to start with him. Um,
1: okay. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me to the UCL. Mexican society, I'm very happy to share this uh, panel with, El, with Dr. Ella and all of you. As you know, it's a very important topic right now in Mexico. And so the title of this brief presentation is The Aristegui Farid and the Barriers to Investigative Journalism in Mexico. As you know, many things have been happening since, since top radio journalist, Carmen Aristegui, was sick from air about one month ago. That situation reminds us that the Aristegui Affair, and this is important, is an open issue, and things are moving very fast. Last Friday, April 17, one federal judge, Judge Silva, accepted the so-called Amparo, a Mexican legal procedure intended to defend citizens against government abuse. In this unprecedented Amparo, the judge Silva took into consideration the nature of the labor relation between Aristegui and NBS radio meaning that it is not only a conflict between two private actors rather than a public interest issue that involves the radio spectrum that belongs to the Mexicans, as you know. Another event that happened very recently in Mexico just three days ago was the cyber attacks that bring down Aristegui Noticias. These attacks coincide with the publication on Sunday morning of the publication of a journalistic piece called Fueron Los Federales a very well-documented journalistic work that reveals and denounces the, executa- the, exec- the, execu- the execution sorry, of civilians by the Mexican federal police. Sorry,
0: if you want me to click on the presentation. Oh,
1: it's fine with the okay. introduction. No problem. Uh, these recent events gave me the background that I need to talk about the core of this topic, to talk about the reasons behind Aristegui Fire it. As was argued by the company, MBS Radio, the origin of Aristegui's Fearing last month, was her participation in Mexico Leaks, as you know, a new platform to leak information to set of very important media outlets. As was pointed out at, the moment, uh, at that moment by international and, and national media, the company's reaction seems to be disproportionate, at least. And as was mentioned in different parts, here and there, the fire was out of any economic logic as Aristegui's radio program was one of the most successful radio programs in the country, with an audience of 18 million people, mainly in Mexico City, but beyond that. If we agree that this was a disproportionate reaction and beyond any economic logic, therefore we need to ask about the real reasons behind this, which are the real reasons behind um, her fired. And let me answer this in a very clear manner. Uh, as was pointed out by the international press since the 31st beginning, or rose lead to her journalistic work, specifically to President Peña Nieto White House scandal. This reportage about President Peña's $7 million mentioned in Las Lomas de Chapultepec, as you know, one of the wealthiest neighborhoods in Mexico City and Latin America, is one of the best investigative journalistic pieces written in Mexico, In recent years, this work exposed the prevailing corruption at the very top level of the political system. The reportage discovered the conflict of interest between federal contractor and the president himself. The scandal destroyed public trust in Mexican government and set an agenda within the most prominent national and international news media. This occurred as President Peña was working to convince foreign investors of the benefits of investing in our country. The journalistic work is compared in importance to Watergate scandal that exposed President Nixon's illegal behavior in 1973 in the States, that ended with Nixon resignation one year later. But, meanwhile, journalists who disclosed the Watergate scandal, both Woodward and Carl Bernstein, remained at the Washington Post in spite of the pressure from Nixon administration. The investigative team who published the White House Gate in Mexico were fired. Meanwhile, in the U.S., Woodward and Bernstein won the Pulitzer Prize, as you know. In Mexico, Aristegui and 19 people lost their jobs. Woodward and Bernstein won the Pulitzer Prize for public service because investigative journalism is also a public good. Investigative reporting, also known as watchdog journalism or for a state function of the press, is crucial not only to supply information that enhance public understanding but also to hold officials and corporate actors to account and denounce government wrongdoing. In Mexico, the news organization's commitment to investigative reporting remains crucial as it may force political, political entities and bodies to take action even when political institutions have systematically failed to hold public officials and corporations accountable. In societies as the Mexican, in which institutional check and balance do not function at all, or not as supposed to function, investigative journalism is a force for democratization. Aristegui investigative journalism calls powers into account, as has been shown in the reportage about the Peña's White House. Sheds lights into the darkest areas of the Mexican public life, as in the case of electoral fraud of uh, 2011, the so-called Monarch's Gate. enhanced plurality through giving voice to an important social sector, such as the punctual coverage of the disappearance of the 43 students in Ayotzinapa. Just to mention some of the most recent examples of all this. At the moment in which she and her team were fired, uh, they were working in in information about the Tlatlaya massacre, which involves the Minister of Defense, they also were working about the mention about a new mention of Luis Bedorite secretary of finance at Malinalco in a situation quite similar to the White House. Even when the rise of political pluralism and the increase in market competition opened the door for more voices in the media landscape in the last 20 years in Mexico, investigative journalism is not the rule but an exception in the country. Even when there are uh, an examples example of investigative journalism pieces in Mexico and media outlets beyond Aristegui's work, such as Proceso and His Magazines, or Reporte Indigo and Newspaper Reforma, it's fair to say that all these examples are exceptions because investigative journalism in Mexico faces at least three big barriers. Media concentration, the prevalence of clientelistic relations, and lastly, the journalistic weakness in the rule of law. All these dimensions that have been spawned out for many scholars in Latin America and beyond, and applied to Mexico and other parts of Latin America. Mexico suffers one of the highest media concentration markets in the hemisphere. This situation favors the practice of so called market driving news, a practice in which profits and economic interests interfere with journalistic values. In Mexico, market driving news is a distinguished by the spectacularization of the information and the dramatization and oversimplification of social movements and international conflicts. This situation turns worse in a context in which there is not a strong and autonomous public media broadcasters, as happened in other parts, for instance, in UK and other countries in Europe. The second barrier to investigative journalism is the prevalence of press state-clientary regulations in which the media receives licences and concessions, including public spending money, in return of federal coverage and support, a practice that still happened at subnational and national level with the discretionary allocation of public money in the newspaper industry, as well as in the discretionary allocation of licences and concessions in the electronic industry at federal level. Probably, if we want to understand the decisions of Family Vargas, the owners of MBS radio, in this case we need to analyze this dimension but unfortunately we don't have have all the information yet. Finally, one of the most difficult obstacles for free and independent media in Mexico is a generalized weakness in the rule of law which turns into aggressions towards journalists and media outlets from state and not state actors. Furthermore, it's clear that this direct attack, this direct censorship against Aristegui work, does not happen in isolation. I mean, that doesn't happen in a vacuum. Freedom of the press, and with that, freedom of expression, the right of information, are under attack in Mexico. Since 2000, there have been killed more than 80 journalists. According to the Committee for Protection of Journalists based in New York, during Peña administration, as much as 14 journalists has been killed in Mexico. According to Reports Without Borders, the latest victims was murdered this weekend. Abel Manuel Bautista, community radio director in Oaxaca. In Mexico, the anti-press violence came from different actors. The anti-press violence came from the government, from the very top parts, to to the municipal authorities. Passing through authoritarian incumbents in many parts and states in Mexico, as in the case of the dangerous state of Veracruz, in which having killed 13 journalists, In the last two administrations. The anti-press violence also came from non-state actors, as you know, such as organized crime and national and international economic powers, such as the case of the mining industry in Baja California. One of the perverse dimensions of this anti-press violence in Mexico is the very high level of impunity. When it comes to the assassination of journalists in Mexico, as much as 89% of those attacks against journalists remain in impunity also according with the committee for protect journalists following international reports about the mexican case and the academic literature the most notorious consequence of this impunity is the chilling effect that cows within journalists editors and media outlets the case of Aristegui happened in this context this is one element that we need to consider and maybe the case and this fire and all those attacks to her website have a negative consequence in the Mexican media system, a Chilean effect as well. But this is an open question. If the government or, or, or all the people in power have the power to silence Aristegui, what happened with other journalists who do not enjoy all the public attention and influence that she enjoys? This is uh, an open question here. But uh, as a sort of... Um, As a sort of conclusion, let me be a little bit more optimistic. As far as I understand, this event represents a test not only for the political and judicial system in Mexico, but also for our new democracy. As probably as happened in other cases, such as the fire of Julio Cerro García in 1976 and the assassination of investigative journalist Manuel Buendía in 1984, the fire of Aristegui may be a turning point for the media system in Mexico. And this, as a sort of conclusion, I want to point out three elements that reinforce this idea of the turning point. First, the emergence of a more structured and well-organized type of collaborative journalism, which involves different media outlets, some of them in Mexico and others beyond the country. This type of collaborative journalism may be a way to publish in a safety and successfully way journalistic works. We have uh, some examples, quite recent examples, the White House scandal is, is one of those examples. The other just happened uh, during the weekend uh, with this piece, fueron Los Federales, that was published by Aristegui Proceso and Univision simultaneously. Secondly, the emergence of platform as, we, as Mexico leaks. In a country in which there are, as you know, in place so big barriers to investigative journalism, these platforms that allow whistleblowers to leak anonymity and with secure way Information about corruption and other links remain as crucial. This project, which involves eight media outlets and organizations in Mexico and beyond, may become a force towards a more transparent Mexico, as they claim. Finally, there has been thousands and thousands of people protesting in the street and in the digital sphere, including in social media and international platforms as Change.com. This social mobilization remains crucial because it's one of the first times in, the, in which citizens became conscious of the rights of the audience, this quite new kind of right that is, now take, that is now recognized by our Constitution. And as well as Judge Silva pointed out last week, this may be uh, the crucial part of all this history. And also it's important because when we refer and we talk about freedom of the press and freedom of expression we need to refer to the citizens that are the more important actors in all this saga. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much for this very illustrative presentation. Uh, Jose Antonio, I think you uh, highlight very, very important three uh, uh, options for us as pathways that we can follow uh, the collaborative journalism, the anonymous leaks, the social mobilization, and above all, the, citizen- the, 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 the existence and prevalence of citizenship. So, thank you very much for that. Um, I think we can turn on the lights now because uh, Ella is not going to use any PowerPoint. Um, yeah. <laughs> oh, sorry. Right? Yeah. Oh, there is. I'm serious, <laughs> I'm <laughs> uh, we would also like to say that um, um, uh, this, this case uh, and this conference itself has raised a lot of interest in Mexico. Even the, the website of Aristelio Noticias uh, talked about it. So we are doing a podcast in order to uh, get questions <laughs> from that come up from after this encounter. And uh, I, I will present Ella. Uh, Dr. Ella McPherson is an ESRC future research leader in the University of Cambridge uh, and the Department of Sociology, as well as a research associate of Cambridge Center of Governance and Human Rights. Her current research is on social media and human rights, while her previous research was on human rights reporting at Mexican newspapers. Please.
2: Thank you. Thank you for the invitation, and thank you for your excellent presentation. It was really... Interesting to hear your thoughts. I think there'll be a lot of resonance, actually, between what the two of us want to say about this. Um, um, So as Tona and Jose Antonio explained, Aristegui was fired by her company after she defended two colleagues who had used the company's affiliation in their participation in this venture, Mexico Leagues. And there, you know, we don't quite know what happened behind the scenes, but there's a suspicion on the street um, that this was an indirect or a direct result of actual or perceived pressure from Peña Nieto's government. We don't know. Um, We also know that this was in the wake of the exposure, as you pointed out, of great um, investigative reporting around the White House scandal. Um, Furthermore, this is in the backdrop of a very turbulent time, has the backdrop of a very turbulent time in Mexico, which um, the latest stage of which I think was set off um, by the situation of the enforced disappearance of in September of 43 students at the hands of the police, 42 of whom have not been heard from. So um, Arisegui getting the sack has created a huge uproar in Mexico and has garnered attention abroad. I mean, here we are. Um, there's a hashtag which I think, interestingly, thinking about that kind of international solidarity, is in English which is hashtag um, Mexico wants Ariegi back um, has been top trending in in Mexico and um, people are peti- uh, protesting and, and petitioning to get her back um, so obviously I you know without doing the empirical research I can't tell you exactly why each of the thousands and thousands of people mobilizing have decided to speak or decided to act but I can tell you why I Immobilized. why I've been speaking um, at a few events on the human rights and the journalistic situation in Mexico. So this is, of course, about, about um, my own outrage, um, but it's also closely intertwined with kind of my work and identity as a media sociologist, so I'm going to explain it in those terms. Um, and as a media sociologist who did a media ethnography of human rights reporting at Mexican newspapers in 2006 which um, was just at the cusp of this spike in violence we've seen until the present day. So it was a different time in 2006. Um, So right now, though, in Mexico, what we're seeing is a state, and I think this relates to my own outrage and perhaps the outrage of others, is a state that is being quite heavy-handed, extremely heavy-handed, in fact, in its abuse of power. And the sociological approach, or one sociological approach, to thinking about state power is thinking about it in terms of coercive power and symbolic power. Um, Coercive power is about the state getting its way by force, and symbolic power is about getting its way by winning hearts and minds. All governments use a mix of the two, and both are highly problematic, and we should investigate both. Um, But I think that we can hope that the more democratic a state becomes, the less it uses coercive power and the more it exercises symbolic power when dealing with its own populations. I'm not saying that symbolic power is better, I'm just saying that you can survive symbolic power, right? Um, okay, so my research on human rights reporting um, that I did in 2006 was at some of the more independent newspapers, uh, many of them headquartered in Mexico City, and it made an argument about symbolic power. Um, Again, sort of one, line, one sort of purpose of media sociology is to uncover these hidden or inadvertent power relations that mean that some people's version of events wins. Um, so in other words, my argument was about how certain practices in the newsroom, how journalism was done, certain norms of how journalism was thought about, how good journalism was conceived, how these created a situation where in a symbolic power um, struggle paid out in the, in the pages of a newspaper over human rights, state actors could get an edge Um, So, for example, I documented how a concern at newspapers with their institutional credibility, and they were so concerned about this because of this tradition of kind of cozy relationships with the government. So those who were trying to be more independent were very concerned about being credible with respect to kind of incorruptibility, to total independence. Um, And this this was a reason, one of the reasons, why they featured human rights reporting prominently in their pages. It made them look independent. It made them look incorrupt- uncorrupted. Um, but at the same time, this concern with credibility, and this is where I get to the symbolic impo- power struggles and sort of the hidden um, power relations, um, they, this concern with credibility meant that these newspapers were very cautious with the introduction of human rights sources Outside of the of the big established ones, and you might have this might include the government human rights commissions, which do not have um, well they have some independence, but really a range of sort of performance on human rights, um, or what they what journalists would often refer to as serious NGOs, um, which were the sort of very long established and big national and international ones. So the smaller or newer human rights NGOs were very susceptible. They had less resources to fight back on the symbolic terrain. They were tarred with what I call discrediting discourses. These were attacks on these NGOs' credibility. These were accusations of their financial and political corruption that were perpetuated by government officials that these NGOs had accused of violations. So the newspapers were worried about tainting their own credibility by association with these sources. And so the consequence was these sources would often be excluded from the news. Um, this is is a critique of symbolic power, right? This is obviously bad for freedom of expression expression if we're thinking about who gets to express themselves via the media. Now, I wish that today we were talking about symbolic power struggles. I wish that we were talking about the unintended consequences of journalistic norms and even about things like the negative effects of commercialization on the freedom of expression. But I'm not talking about that we're not talking about that what we're talking about is a journalist fired possibly quite possibly because she was too critical we're talking about her website going under repeated cyber attacks we're talking about bot attacks on social media of trending hashtags that correspond to protests against the disappearance of the 43 or the firing of has um, anyone seen these bots (laughs) yeah yeah um for those who have it do you know how they work No? Maybe? So maybe I'll explain quickly. Um, The idea is that you have these hashtags um, and like this one, one, right? And so what you could do is um, uh, pay for a bunch of bots, which are sort of fake Twitter accounts to corrupt this hashtag. And the way they do that is by um, using the hashtag, uh, but like associating it with with accounts that look junky, right? So, there's the Twitter face is an egg, you know, it's not actually a picture. It will associate the hashtag with random stuff. So basically, the Twitter algorithm picks it up as spam. Um, if it's seen as spam, a spam hashtag, it drops down in the sort of algorithm outcome, which creates the top trending stuff, okay? Um, so in other words, what we're talking about today is a state's exercise of coercive power in response to symbolic counterpower. We're talking about a state that thinks it's okay to shut down the debate by force rather than engage with it in a hearts and minds battle that it still often has the resources to win. Um, We're talking about journalism in an extreme context, far from an ideal context. And part of the reason why it's so productive to talk about this, as Carruthers points out with respect to war reporting, is that it's a version It's an extreme version of journalism in a normal context. The extreme case can highlight for us, because it's so extreme, the fundamental problematics of regular journalism in that context. So in this case, what that means is we're talking about a pervasive culture or context in Mexico um, that, over time that has made it somehow permissible in the state's perspective um, for it to respond to journalism with coercion. This environment has allowed a situation, and this is statistics that mirror yours, um, but they're from Article 19's recent state of censorship report, where journalists, one journalist in Mexico is attacked every 26.7 hours. Every 26.7 hours, that's insane. Um, There have been 10 murders and four disappearances of journalists during President Peña Nieto's tenure. All of those cases have been treated with impunity. In half of the attacks on journalists in 2014, the aggressor was a government official. Right? Um, of course, as you said, it's not only the state, but also you know, the um, drug cartels who have notoriously murdered people using social media and blogs, let alone journalists, uh, to criticize or report on them. As Arisegi herself has alluded to, and you also made this point, uh, we should be thinking beyond her individual case to... Um, thinking of her as a representative of a repressed journalists and journalism all over Mexico, as you said she 's received this worldwide attention, um, but what of the hundreds of other journalists who don 't have her fame and thus a certain measure of protection and support um, in in the research that I was referencing that I did in two thousand and six i didn 't just interview journalists at the relatively independent newspapers in Mexico City but also journalists who were operating under uh, much more authoritarian conditions in Chiapas and Oaxaca. They were subject to violence, Um, the newspaper owners had these cash-for-coverage relationships with politicians, and they had very little freedom or resources to pursue human rights reporting, but many of them still tried, right? They told me stories of resignation, they told me stories of resilience, they told me stories of resistance. They detailed how they kept reporting after being kidnapped and held hostage, after being beaten and having their cameras smashed, after having gun room surround their newsrooms and hold them inside their newsroom for a month. Um, they told me about how their newspaper's owners would censor or cut coverage that might jeopardize a job for them in the state government. They told me about how they passed the stories that they wrote to colleagues at more open newspapers if their own newspapers wouldn't publish them. Um, I presented this, their experiences at a conference um, and one question I got was, why did they tell you all that? Wasn't it risky for them to tell you that? Um, and I've been thinking about that since and um, you know, wondering if, in a sense, I mean, it's not something I discuss with a journalist, but I wonder if, in a sense, they saw participating in my research as possibly another avenue for them for exercising their freedom of expression. It was a way for them to give voice to their experiences, to give testimonies of corruption. Um, and this gets me onto a question for all of us. Um, are we as, um, as we as academics are implicated in questions of the freedom of expression as well. What is our role in researching in the context of repression, you know, as media sociologists? Can we, should we provide avenues for freedom of expression? Are these avenues safe? Um, in a way, I think this is a form of witnessing and that we're listening to and acting on the accounts of these journalists. We can be witnesses for these journalists, just like they're witnesses for the subjects of abuses of power and violence. But this also um, raises methodological questions. So if we're looking at journalism in repressive context, it may not be enough to look at what is covered, Right. With what, you know, with what frames, that kind of thing. We need to focus on what Coddle has referred to as news silences. What is that that's not covered and why? And this has methodological implications. It means the way that we can gather this is by interacting with the field, by interviewing journalists, by observing them on their beats in their newsrooms, observing them interacting with power. Um, so in this sense, the tradition of media ethnography and a concern for freedom of expression go hand in hand. Um, but researching under repression has ethical implications as well because we don't want to uh, expose our informants or ourselves to risk through their participation in our research Um, but we also shouldn't ourselves contribute to the silencing through shying unnecessarily away from these topics, uh, which we're not today obviously, or through kind of fear driven um, um, sort of exclusion of informant statements um, when they've made calculated decisions for freedom of expression by speaking with us and I think Academics, um, researching in risky contexts, actually have a lot to learn from journalists um, on this matter. Um, But this, what I'm talking about is actually our symbolic counterpower. And I would venture that with that classic phrase about a door opening, a door closing and a window opening, um, it's actually a good time, I mean, you seem to agree, uh, for symbolic counterpower in Mexico. I mean, it's a problematic time, but there are opportunities. And I don't um, like to overemphasize the possibilities of digital information and communication technologies. Um, but I think we can see that they're doing something. Their use is doing something for freedom of expression in Mexico. Um, these critical hashtags circulate, and protesters use social media to mobilize. Um, Mexico Leaks is using technology to make more secure channels for whistleblowing. To connect civilian witnesses with journalists, Um, something that could be, you know, face to face or on the ground, could be very dangerous. But you know, technologically mediated, there's somewhat of a safer channel. Um, And these journalists aim, as the website says, is to amplify the voice of these whistleblowers. Um, And this is why it's so important we're here today that, uh, that these events are happening here in London as well as elsewhere around the world. But I want to say a final caveat. About this is that um, I think the oft-overlooked aspect of freedom of expression is it's not just about the freedom to speak, but also the ability to be heard. So is all of this symbolic counterpower that we're exercising falling on deaf ears? Like, what is the government actually doing? What is actually happening in response to any of this protest, to social media um, dialogues or, you know, this, these meetings? Um, furthermore, the ability to be heard, so you know, once you get beyond the point where you have physical security, which obviously is still a major issue for um, ma- many journalists in Mexico um, and others. Um, so once you get beyond that, it- it's completely tied up in the power that you yourself have. So your ability to be heard is completely tied up in your own reputation, your financial resources, your status, etc. cetera. Um, which is why I urge that as much as we... Continue to focus our research and our, our sort of outrage on the state's exercise of coercive of power, we also have to maintain a critical eye towards its exercise of symbolic power. Thanks. Thank
0: you. Okay, well, thank you very much. I-